0: I appreciate that. That's a song I haven't heard for a long time, and it's a great song. It's always encouraging to know God's never going to let go of our hands. So grab your Bibles, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're continuing our series uh, from the book called Following Jesus in a Messy World. And in the first uh, couple of messages um, from uh, from, uh, 2 Corinthians... Uh, we confirmed the fact that we do indeed live in a messy world. Uh, the results of sin are pain, heartache, turmoil. Uh, it makes messes in nations, in communities, in businesses, in churches, in homes, and in individuals. We also confirmed the inevitability of pain and suffering in our own lives, the lives of a believer. God does not shield us from the hurts of this world. He does, however offer incredible comfort, encouragement, strength, and everything we need to persevere and move through the trials and have victory over those. And we serve a God who is a master at cleaning up the messes. And no matter what the situation is, it is never beyond His capabilities. And He has promised that He will ultimately bring us safely through Uh, even if that ultimate safely through means bringing into His very presence. He also provides comfort for us by the fellowship, the relationships we have with one another, and by the prayers, our own prayers, but by the prayers of other believers for us. Then last week we we saw how God has plans to grow us and mature us even through the midst of uh, trials and messiness as the promises of God grip our heart and and we can become utterly convicted and convinced of them, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit begins to transform us from the inside out so that we can become this person that God has designed us to be and be the light and the hope uh, right here in, in this dark and messy world to other people. So God's got that plan going on through the middle of the messes. Now today... Uh, we're going to see two keys to dealing with some possible causes of messiness in our own life and in the church. Um, Hopefully, you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're at the end of the chapter, verse uh, 23. Follow along as we read through verse 11 of chapter 2. It says, But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, but our workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient For such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Father God, we pray that you would open our hearts our hearts and our minds. Help us to see with spiritual uh, eyes and hear with spiritual ears the word that you would have for us today. And God, I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight, that you would keep me from saying anything that would distract or hinder the message that you would want to bring across and that you would be free to work in our hearts and lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think most of you out there know that, um, that I kind of like uh, and enjoy professional football. I mean, you know, just a little bit. But, uh, you know, football is, is a game of, of strength and skill and, and uh, brute force. Uh, it takes athleticism, smart, speed, endurance, but it's also a game of strategy. Uh, the coaches uh, of one team are always looking for ways to take advantage of of any weaknesses or deficiencies that they might see in the other team Uh, each head coach with his offensive and coordinator every week get together to craft a game plan And, and in part of that developing that game plan includes this idea of identifying those areas of weaknesses that the other team might have that they feel that they can take advantage of a few of you might be aware that my favorite team is the Miami Dolphins. Some of you might know that. They are undefeated this year. They've only played one game. (laughs) But still, undefeated. But an honest assessment of, uh, of my favorite team would tell you that they have a lot of weaknesses. On defense, the middle linebacker is a weakness. The starter from last year hurt his neck last year and he's not playing football anymore. So we were down our starter. But the team planned for that so they drafted a stud in the second round to take over his position. They would be well prepared for them. This guy had gone through his entire high school and college career, never missed a game due to injury. In the first preseason game on the first play of the game he hurt his knee and he's out for the year but that's okay because the team had a backup plan they had also draft or uh, uh, signed in free agency a really good linebacker away from the Pittsburgh Steelers I mean the Steelers are known for developing outstanding linebackers so I mean we got this guy that will really help but the day before the first game he went AWOL from the team just left. Disappeared. They had to file a missing persons account, some personal issue. He's gone. So now we're down to the fourth string guy, a guy named Mike Hall. He tries really hard. <laughs> he gives his best effort on every play. But he doesn't have the size, the speed, the strength, or the skill to be very good. And the opposing coaches are going to target him in their game plan because they know they can take advantage of that position. Now, I know there's a lot of similarities between a church and a sports team. Hopefully, you know that as a team, we are on, all on the same side working together to accomplish a specific mission, and as a church, you know, we know what our mission is. It's, it's a two-fold mission, right? First, it's to reach people for Jesus Christ. We, we want to be looking for opportunities and ways to share the love of God and the grace of God with, with other people. Um, and, and one very easy way to do that is simply to invite people to come with you to, to church, right? Just invite them to join in activity, study, this, whatever. Uh, that simple invitation lets them begin to experience that love and, and grace of God. But the second part of the mission is for those who have uh, made a commitment to Jesus Christ, we are to help them grow and mature in their faith and in their walk. That, that's our mission. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And a church that doesn't do those two things would be kind of like a football team out in the middle of the field playing tiddlywinks, right? They might be having fun, but they're not accomplishing the mission of scoring touchdowns and winning the game. Now, in order for a church to accomplish its mission, God has a game plan. And that game plan describes how we are supposed to act and react with one another. And there's a lot of instructions on how we do that, a lot of one another commands and things. But God has a plan for how we live and operate together so that we might best accomplish the mission. But guess what? Our opponent, Satan, also has a game plan. And his goal for the church is the exact opposite of God's. So, you know, as he devises his game plan, he is going to be looking and seeking ways to take advantage. And that brings us to our text in 2 Corinthians because it shows us two common ways that Satan does take advantage of, of both an individual in their walk and of the local church. So look again at the way Paul ended this paragraph. This is all one paragraph that we, we looked at there, and he ended the paragraph by saying, so that no advantage would be taken out of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now, I love the fact that this verse starts with, so that. I mean, that indicates that what was just written uh, was written for a very specific purpose, and that purpose is now going to be revealed to us. I mean, when I'm reading the Bible, I love that phrase, so that. It, It makes studying and understanding the Bible much easier because you know that so that is an obvious flag to say, oh, stop, there's going to be a purpose statement here, and And then the instructions for that purpose statement should have just been previously given. So it really helps you figure out what's going on. I love that. And here the purpose statement is very clear, right? So that no advantage is going to be taken of us by Satan. And before we look at exactly what that means, let's recognize the implication of that statement, right? And the implication is clear. Satan is trying to take advantage of us right? If, if he has to have a purpose statement so that he won't, it means that he is. And the word us, it can be understood in two distinct ways, right? Uh, the us means me, and it means you as individuals. Satan is looking for ways that he can take advantage of me and of you in your life. And we need to know and we need to understand that every Christian truly does have an opponent, an enemy. And the enemy is not another person, no matter what kind of harm they may have caused you or be causing you. And an enemy certainly is not another brother or sister in Christ. It's Satan who is out to get you. That's part of what Paul means when he says, hey, let's not be ignorant of his schemes. We have to understand that his schemes are targeting you, me, us. So what exactly is he targeting? Well, all kinds of things, but he's, he's looking for any you know, ways to create weaknesses or weaknesses we have in our life. He, he's looking for how he can trip you up. He wants to take your eyes off Jesus. I mean, He doesn't care where your eyes are as long as they're not on Jesus, right? He doesn't care if they're focused on yourself or on your circumstances or on other people as if, you know, the other people were the problems in your life or this type of thing. As long as your eyes aren't on Jesus, He knows He can take advantage of you. Or He's targeting your attitude towards the Word of God. He doesn't want you to take it seriously. And again, he has any number of ways he might try to accomplish that and he doesn't care which one you would fall for. Uh, Maybe he would want you to try to doubt its veracity, right? He'll, he'll whisper things in ears like, oh, you, you can't really believe, you know, all that stuff that's in the Bible is true, can you? I mean, look how, look how far-fetched that stuff is. Uh, you know, a, a guy being swallowed by a whale and living for three days in his belly or axe head floating in water or, you know, creation in six days. Come on, you can't really believe that stuff, can you? See, he'll, he'll start with the miraculous because if he can get you to begin doubting the miraculous, then it's you know, just a hop, skip, and a jump away from doubting anything and everything else in his word. Or maybe he'll just get you to kind of ignore the word of God. You know, yeah, the Bible's there, but I, you know, I, I, I got too much other stuff going on. And, and, you know, there's lots of other good information in life to help me with life. He'll just get you to ignore the word of God. Or, or you know, you'll listen to what it says, but you'll put yourself as the authority over there. I'm going to kind of pick and choose what what I want to believe and what I want to apply and what, what's going to go on in my life, you know, this type of thing. So, you know, his scheme is is going to keep you away from the Word of God. He doesn't want you to take it seriously because, you know, God uses the Bible uh, to, to strengthen and encourage us and transform us in our, in our lives. So whatever he can do to keep you away is going to be good. He'll He'll make you too busy. I'm just too busy to to read the Bible, to go to a Bible study, to to get into God's Word. Uh, Too tired. Uh, You know, I I was going to do it, but man, that's been a long day. I'm I'm too tired to do that. Or, you know, too much fun. I got too many other things going on in my life. And I just just, uh, got all these things that are distracting me and keeping me away. Satan is targeting us. The Bible. Tells us of another prominent way Satan targets us. He lies and attempts to deceive us. Jesus said of him in in John 8, 44, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So by not being ignorant of his schemes, knowing that, hey, he's going to lie, he's going to try to deceive... We're better prepared to stand firm against them. So the first area to not be deceived in is the fact that Satan is targeting you. So now, back to 2 Corinthians 2.11, I I said there were two ways in in which the word us could be understood. It, It means us individually, but it also means us as a group, collectively as the local church. Satan wants to take advantage of us to keep us from or to make us ineffective in accomplishing the mission of the church here in Hot Springs. Satan's game plan is to disrupt, dismantle, and otherwise just diss the plan of God's in the church, right? God, He wants us to use our spiritual gifts to encourage and build up one another. So Satan wants us to... neglect those gifts, let them go to waste. So he'll come up with all kinds of reasons why you can't possibly get involved or make a commitment or help with this or that. God wants us to develop unity and harmony in the church. So Satan, of course, wants to bring discord, division. He'll provide ample opportunities for misunderstandings or gossip, or judgmentalism. or Satan, he may try to do what the Apostle Paul was having to address in this passage today. See, last week we saw how some false teachers had moved into the Corinthian church after Paul left, and and they had accused Paul of vacillating on his word and and on his plans. And, you know, Paul had previously planned to come to Corinth two times, but then he uh, ended up reducing that to just one. And one of the reasons was he wanted to get to Jerusalem in time for the Passover, but the main reason he did, Paul gives right here in this passage, verse 23 says, but I call God... As witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. So, you know, obviously, the first question well, spare him from what? What, What's he talking about there? And and to do that, that's where we need to do a little digging into the history of of what happened there in the, the Corinthian church. So, Paul founded the church. Uh, of Corinth during his second missionary journey. He stayed there for 18 months uh, before moving on. And, and then a couple of years later, he's on his third missionary journey, and he's in the city of Ephesus. And while he was there, a group of three men came from Corinth uh, uh, with with a, a, a report of all kinds of problems going on in the church, divisions and different things like this happening there. And so Paul wrote a letter and, and sent it back to that city. And then he also decided, I'm going to send Timothy there to see what Timothy can do. And we're not sure if, you know, Timothy took this letter back to Corinth or if those three guys carried it with them when they went or whatever the case, uh, whatever happened, that letter became what we know in our Bible as 1 Corinthians. And it details wow, instructions about dealing with all these problems that were going on. Well, afterwards... Timothy came back to Paul and he brought a very negative report of all that was happening in Corinth and how they had responded even to that letter. And that prompted Paul to make a real quick brief visit to Corinth, but it ended up being a very painful visit. As you piece together clues from 2 Corinthians on this second visit, uh, Paul evidently faced very stiff opposition from these false teachers to the point of these false teachers publicly rebuking him and and calling him out, and and no backup, no support from the church that was there at all. And so he went back to Ephesus very deeply hurt and and in sorrow, he says. and, And in that Position. he wrote another letter that the Bible, Bible scholars dubbed the severe letter. Second uh, Corinthians 7, 8 mentions this letter. It says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, but only for a while. So this, this letter was severe and, and, and caused them sorrow. And this particular letter... is is lost to history, but its purpose was to challenge the church to stand up against the sin of the false teachers. They needed to deal with that situation in a biblical way, exerting, if needed, church discipline wherever necessary. And that's, you know, kind of what was being referred to in verse 3, where he says, this is the very thing I wrote to you so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. So he's saying, you know, I wrote this letter that you needed to deal with this sin in the hopes that you would take care of all that stuff so that when I did come back to you, it could be a time of joy, a time of, uh, of, of happiness, not, not more conflict and sorrow. I mean, any time you have to deal with confrontation, discipline, and oppose uh, sinful actions, I mean, it's, it's a hard thing. And you can clearly see how hard it was in, in difficult. and difficult in Paul's heart from verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you would be made sorrowful, that wasn't his point and purpose, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So, I mean, yes, you can see how hard it is there, but what was included in that difficulty? His his love, right? And and biblical discipline, whether you're talking a a parent to a child, a a friend confronting a friend, or a church dealing with a willfully sinful member, biblical discipline, if done properly, if done biblically, is always an act of love. Because the purpose of, is not some, you know, mere punishment but correction that leads to repentance that leads to restoration of fellowship and relationship. And that's why Paul could speak of joy coming out of this severe letter. And apparently The church took that letter to heart and acted in accordance with biblical principles. Jesus himself laid out uh, the process for the church to follow in, in those cases. In Matthew 18, it says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them... Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, at some point through this process, this confronted person in Corinth must have accepted that and repented. However, there were some in the church that they wanted to keep the punishment going longer. Perhaps they felt like this guy was, you know, getting off too easily, that he hadn't suffered enough for the pain and and sorrow that he had caused. But Paul said, no, no, that's not the way we do it. I mean, look at verses six and seven. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So this sinful man, he had responded in repentance, but that's not the end of the story the church also had something it needed to do. It needed to forgive. And forgiveness is the key that leads to a restored relationship because, you know, look at what comes next after forgiving. Verse 8, Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for Him. That's that's relationship building, isn't it? That's what makes uh, all of this possible. Um, In fact, what made this whole situation of restoration possible is this. Repentance on the one hand and forgiveness on the other. So now again, let's go back to where we started. Paul said he wrote these things. I wrote these things so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan for we're not ignorant of his schemes. So how is it that Satan wants to try to take advantage of us? Number one, by an individual or a church being unwilling to confront or deal with sin. And number two, by an unwillingness to forgive the offending party. Or, you know, if you prefer better to put it in the positive, Satan cannot take advantage of us when we deal with sin biblically and when we forgive wholeheartedly. So going back to the negative, Satan will take advantage in your life if you ignore, gloss over, or refuse to deal with areas of sin. Now please understand, we're all coming from the same boat of being imperfect people, right? And that means we all mess up. But God's plan for his children is that day by day, week by week, as time moves on, we would become more and more like Jesus Christ. And to help us do that, God reveals specific areas of sin in our life that he wants to work on because he's the only one that can transform that, right? And when he reveals those areas, when he does that, if we refuse to deal with that sin, then we open ourselves up to being taken advantage by Satan. And the same is true for us as a church. We know that there's not a single perfect person in this church. If you're perfect, you might want to get up and leave right now because you're going to be really uncomfortable around the rest of us who are still struggling with sin. So if anybody is perfect, they can, they can go ahead and check out right now. The rest of us, we know we still blow it, right? But there are times within a church where a person willfully continues in sin with no remorse, no repentance. And as a church, we're, we're obligated to help that person very gently and compassionately, as, as Galatians 6.1 would make clear. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted You know, following the procedures that Jesus laid out in Matthew 18 with love and gentleness, we are called to help our brothers and sisters confess and repent and then be restored. And and if we're unwilling to do that as a church, Satan will take advantage. Disrupting fellowship, hindering our witness as a church. It's a hard thing to do, but it's essential that's what Paul was indicating in verse 9. He says, For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Are you going to do this? Are you going to follow through for the sake of the church, for its health and strength? Paul wrote them about how they should uh, deal with this, and then he anxiously waited to see if they would be obedient, if they would uh, take seriously and deal with the sin that was in their midst. And they... Did, And fortunately, the person in question responded in repentance in a position of restoration. So now, to make it personal, the question is, what about in your own life? Is there an area of sin or weakness that God has revealed to you? And if so how are you responding to that? Repentance means agreeing with God, taking ownership. This is sin. I am wrong. Repentance means turning away from the sin. By God's grace, no more. I'm seeking His path. In his ways. Uh, I'll take whatever practical steps I need to take in, in order to turn and eliminate this sin from the, my life, but I know it's by God's power and his grace. I'm turning away. And repentance means seeking and then receiving God's forgiveness. My heart is cleansed, my sins are washed away. God's grace and mercy our mind. The guilt and the shame is gone. When we deal with sin in that way, no advantage can be taken of us by Satan. But then we have the other aspect of forgiveness. Can I forgive when someone has sinned against me, hurt me, deeply wounded me? How does that happen? What does that look like? What if the other person doesn't deserve to be forgiven? How can I forgive when I don't feel like it? How can I forgive biblically so that no advantage could be taken of me by Satan? Those are all great questions. You'll have to come back next week as we explore the answer to those. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that you have given us your words so that we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. God, we don't need to be fearful of him even though we know he is our enemy because you have given us victory through Jesus Christ and greater are you who are in us than he who is in the world. So God, we don't fear but we do not want to be taken advantage of. So God, we pray that you would help us to be obedient in these areas of forgiveness and of dealing with sin. And God, as we look at that in our own lives, show us that area that you're working on, that we need to be in step with you. Help us, God, to repent fully, not making excuses, not trying to set it aside, or brush it under the rug, but taking ownership, turning away, and receiving your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.